So sports washing um, is when a government like Qatar or China or Russia hosts these events to cover up serious human rights abuses. But then we often also see that abuses are associated with those events themselves. Welcome back. I'm Jonathan Kaplan, the host of the Writing With podcast. Today, it'll be stage 15 of the Tour de France. And I have to say, if you're a fan of the sport, yesterday's stage was just amazing. I think the start with a massive crash and a couple of guys going to the hospital and having to drop out of the race was really unfortunate. And that goes without saying. But if you're going to watch the last hour of the race, it is just remarkable. And the battle or the race between Jonas Vingegaard and Tajay Pajikar is, it's of, I think, you know, Djokovic, Federer, Nadal, Federer, you know, pick, pick your rivalry. That's, that's where it's at. And, and it's just, I mean, I thought I was so impressed with both those guys, you know, the last five kilometers, um, going up to the top of the mountain, you know, climbing 10, 12, 14% grades. And, you know, the, the, you know, there was a big attack by Taji Pajikar, uh, Jonas couldn't respond, but, you know, stayed patient, didn't panic, reeled him back in. And then when it came to the top of the finish line, where there's a time bonus, Jonas put in a big effort and crossed it first. So, I mean, it w- I just think it was just a tremendous part of the race. And it's a reminder of, you know, why we love to watch five hour bike races for that 15, 20 minute period of just, you know, absolute excitement. So today's guest is Mickey Warden, and she's going to talk about the concept and practice of sports washing. Mickey Warden is human rights watches director of global initiatives. She develops and implements international outreach and advocacy campaigns she previously served as Human Rights Watch's media director, working with the world's journalists to help them cover crises, wars, human rights abuses, and political developments in some 90 countries worldwide. Before joining Human Rights Watch in 1998, she lived and worked in Hong Kong as, a, as an advisor to Democratic Party Chairman Martin Lee and worked at the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. as a speechwriter for the U.S. Attorney General and in the Executive Office for the U.S. Attorneys. She's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and she's an elected member of the Overseas Press Club's Board of Governors. She's the editor of The Unfinished Revolution and China's Great Leap, and the co-editor of Torture. There's no one in the United States who has done more work and more good on the issue of sports, business, and human rights than Minky Warden. This is a really educational and fascinating episode, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I do. With that, let's get to it. Mickey, thanks so much for joining us. For the audience and, and the listeners, can you just give us a very broad understanding of what sports washing is? Uh, thank you for having me. I love the podcast. Uh, sports washing is when uh, repressive regimes or governments use the love that fans have for sports to burnish their reputation on the world stage or to um, wash away uh, serious human rights abuses. 
And sports washing has been around for a long time, certainly since Nazi Germany hosted the Olympics and before, but it's really accelerating as a trend. And I think we could look at some different moments, but 2022, I would really identify as one of the apexes of sports washing. You had the um, uh, China under Xi Jinping in the worst repression in the uh, post-Tiananmen era hosting the Winter Olympics. And that was in that was in January and February. And then in November, you had Qatar, an oil-rich autocracy that doesn't permit LGBT rights, um, uh, women's rights. It has a male guardianship system and um, actually has a system of modern day slavery known as the kafala system in place. The eight new stadiums and infrastructure that was constructed with $220 billion worth of infrastructure, that was done uh, by a workforce of 2 million migrant laborers and thousands of them died. So sports washing um, is when a government like Qatar or China or Russia host these events to cover up serious human rights abuses. But then we often also see that abuses are associated with those events themselves. You know, recently the UAE invested in the Washington sports teams here in Washington, D.C. And there was a column about it in Politico the other day. Why is that an issue? What are they trying to do when they, besides just hosting events, those governments also, they sponsor, you know, that they'll live golf, the PGA, that's a big example in professional cycling. You know, the UAE is the sponsor of the world, probably the best team in the world, one of the best teams in the world. Bahrain sponsors a team, Kazakhstan sponsors a team. And then there are companies like Ineos and Total Energy, which are petrochemical gas oil companies that sponsor teams, uh, cycling teams anyway. But can you talk about that as sports washing? What is like what and then and then why should we why should we care? Yeah. Well, you've mentioned a lot of Gulf autocracies, and these are uh governments that that uh uh perform very poorly in protecting the rights of their own citizens. Uh, several of them have a male guardianship system that restricts rights on rights of women and girls. Um, uh, uh, countries like Saudi Arabia that has funded Live Golf and had a surprise merger with the men's PGA Tour um, have made no secret of their effort to use sports and the love that fans have for sports to um, uh cover up or burnish, uh, wipe away human rights abuses. I really see, um, particularly in the um, oil and natural gas rich Gulf autocracies, it's almost an arms race. Um, when Qatar was hosting the World Cup, the um, Saudi Arabia actually attempted to, it, uh, Saudi Arabia has stepped up to attempt to host the World Cup in 2030 or 2034. Um, when the Formula One came to Bahrain, shortly thereafter, it came to Saudi Arabia. So these are governments that um, don't protect the rights of their citizens, but work very hard um, at international PR. And sports is really um, a, a fantastic tool for them to say, 
look at this shiny event we're hosting and don't look at the our prisons filled with political prisoners. So it's it's gross. <laughs> um, what can we do to stop it? Well, um, so there is a um, uh, since 2011, 2011, there is a boring but important set of principles that were adopted by the UN. It's called the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights. And it actually requires uh, all companies uh, in the world, and sports is obviously a multi-trillion dollar business. So it requires all of these companies to um, to actually say, to, to do a number of things. And it requires them to do human rights due diligence, monitoring, right? If you're going to host an event, say a cycling race, you need to do human rights due diligence in advance to know if there, for example, would be problems for journalists to cover that event. Um, you have to monitor because conditions can change. Um, uh, you know, in 2018, um, Jamal Khashoggi was um, murdered and dismembered in a state-sponsored uh, killing. Um, you need to remediate. So if if something goes wrong, if um, a worker dies building your event, you need to compensate the family. And then you need to be transparent about it. And all um, uh, FIFA has, FIFA and the IOC have explicitly adopted these standards. Other sports bodies have not, but the bottom line is that they're all covered by this. So all of these sports are businesses and they are required to identify, prevent, and mitigate human rights abuses. Um, I would say also that many of the sponsors of these sports, Coca-Cola, Adidas, Visa, McDonald's, they all have signed up to the UN guiding principles. They all have human rights directors and they all understand this process. So one interesting, you ask, how do we deal with this? Well, one interesting thing has been actually working directly with companies like Budweiser or Coca-Cola that, for example, have very strong LGBT uh, policies of supporting LGBT rights. Well, what do you do when the World Cup goes to a country like Qatar that has no protection for LGBT people? So um, interestingly, I think the um, these principles are very well entrenched in the corporate world, and they're not at all entrenched in the sport world. So um, to take the case of the Washington investments, all you know the the requirement here is for Monumental and uh, the CEOs of these companies, they really have a responsibility to their fans and they have a responsibility as a business to actually do human rights due diligence on their new investors before the investment happens. So that's, um, you know, a question back to Monumental is, what, what, what human rights due diligence did you do, if any? And if not, why not? Um, because these um, investors that have anti-LGBT policies for athletes who are on the field or on the basketball court um, who may, be, you know, may not want to have an investor that doesn't believe in LGBT rights, particularly if they are LGBT players themselves or if they're allies. So um, these principles have a very practical application. And one of them is you have to ask the players 
um, who are going to be funded by Qatar, hey, is that something you're comfortable with? Are they ever asked? Well, it's it's required. So at, in a lot of sports, yeah, they, they are okay. asked because it's it's not just required under the UN guiding principles. It's also um, stupid. And I'll, I'll give you an example of this. So the Women's World Cup opens on July 20. And FIFA, the international football governing body, which has adopted the UN guiding principles and knows very well that it's required to do human rights due diligence. Um, uh, in January, FIFA announced that Visit Saudi, uh, the state sponsored tourism agency would be a a named sponsor of the Women's World Cup. Now, this was um, incredibly, um, it almost sounded like an onion headline. Didn't sound like it could possibly be true that the Women's World Cup would be sponsored by a government that only allowed women to sit in stadiums in 2018 and only allowed them to drive the same year and still has male guardianship system and still arrests women for tweets and other things. So this is not a good fit, you could say, for the Women's World Cup, which is a celebration of women's rights and LGBT rights. Um, So, But FIFA clearly had also not done their human rights due diligence. So they hadn't checked with Australia or New Zealand, the hosts, and they hadn't checked with the players. So the players were going to have to play up against a jumbotron with Visit Saudi. And a number of the top players, including Megan Rapinoe, um, a number, Sam Kerr from Australia, a number of the top players who are out LGBT activists said, we don't accept this. We weren't asked and we don't accept it. And in the end, FIFA had to walk that walk that dumb decision to have visit Saudi sponsor the Women's World Cup. They had to walk it back, had to cancel that within two months. So yeah, it matters a lot if you don't ask the people who are most affected by your business decisions. And what was interesting about that is FIFA rarely leaves money on the table and they were forced to leave millions of dollars in sponsorship on the table because they didn't take that important step of asking hey, is it okay if we have a sponsor that doesn't believe in women's rights? I mean, that's really fascinating. To just bring it back to cycling for a second, there's a team, Jaco Jaco Alula, an Australian team. Alula is a city in Saudi Arabia that, from what I've read, wants to be a resort destination. Now, there are two Americans. Mm -hmm. There's a Lawson Craddock who's in the Tour de France, rides for that team, and Kristen Faulkner, an American woman rides for the women's team, two of the best writers in the world. Mm-hmm. If there were an enterprising journalist listening, they could go ask that question. That'd probably be a pretty good story. I mean, you know, listen, Saudi Arabia is a global outlier on human rights, broadly speaking, but especially women's rights. And I think it's, um, you know, uh, I think there will be. So the Sa- the Saudis now the biggest investor in a number of sports. And there are, there's a lot of reporting about investments in not just in soccer, 
but in tennis, hosting tennis tournaments, Saudi Arabia is hosting, has hosted the Dakar Rally, the Formula One World Heavyweight Boxing Championships. So I would say the that type of scrutiny is not really very hard to do. You go to the internet and you type in Saudi Arabia and human rights. So it's <laughs> to say that to to do human rights due diligence is not a very complicated process. You could go to the Human Rights Watch World Report and look up what are the human rights conditions in Saudi Arabia or Bahrain or China or any of your would-be partners. Um, I will I will say that there are some encouraging trends within Saudi Arabia, including that women are allowed to play sports now. Um, a lot of work and research that I did um, uh, for about 10 years was focused on Saudi women and girls, 60 million of them not getting to play any sports at all. So sport was banned in Saudi Arabia um, uh, in girls' schools until 2018. So there are some encouraging signs, but as long as Saudi Arabia is locking up um, women for 42 years for tweets, uh, I think it's not a good partner. But but if it is already your partner, if the government's already your partner, then you actually have a credible opportunity for leverage to say, you know, um, I'd appreciate it, um, given our partnership, if you would release um, the women's rights activists who are under jail and house arrest. Interesting. I mean, that's really fascinating. It's hard to believe that it's 2023 and <laughs> that stuff is still happening. Um, that leads to the another question we talked about off mic, but let's bring it back to that. The New York Times abolished its sports page. And, you know, I've the Times, I think, in my view, tried to do both. It tried to report the scores and it tried to do a lot of deep, much deeper dive reporting, almost business-like reporting profiles. And I mean, I love this Times Sports page. What does it mean for this issue? If, for What does it mean for the sports watching issue if the New York Times doesn't have a sports page? So um, the bodies that control global sports and for cycling it's actually the international olympic it's not there's the uci is actually under the international olympic committee um and bodies like fifa that are that um have fifa's four billion in reserves and these are these are technical nonprofits that are actually extremely lucrative um uh, enterprise, you know, businesses. And for example, the IOC or cycling, they sell the rights to broadcast. So you and your listeners as fans are actually part of the product that these large business operations are selling. So they're selling your eyeballs or your listenership to, to, to sponsors. So that's the, that's the, I think the most important way to see these sports federations is, um, you know, people love sports and they they feel about sports the way they don't feel about other things. But these governing bodies are mostly male run. Whenever they're investigated, 
there are there is incredible corruption overturned. You may remember the U.S. Department of Justice had uh, more than half of FIFA's executive board arrested in 2015 and 2016, sure. leading president to step down. So it's fair to see these bodies as as many of them are continuing criminal operations. My own research uh, for the last five years has focused on stopping sexual abuse in sport. Many of the young women or or children who begin sport join national teams as teenagers. So we had two two, two presidents of national sports federations that were sexually assaulting the women and girls, the teenagers of the national team. Um, in basketball in Mali, um, following our research, we had FIBA, the Global Basketball Federation, uh, the presidents from Mali, um, and they they fired the president of the National Federation, suspended the head coach for life, and four other officials were suspended. So essentially, whenever we investigate, we find um, horrific sexual abuse, uh, terrible corruption, and a misuse of funds that are intended for women or children's sports going into the pockets of greedy executives. So they're really not the best partners for, for sponsors, but they're great partners for repressive governments. So repressive governments see in sports federations the same thing they see when they look around their own offices, which is uh, greedy, <laughs> greedy officials who've had who've rarely had scrutiny of their of their corruption. So I do think what it means. Uh, so investigative journalists are an incredibly important part of the sports ecosystem. They are needed to identify and expose corruption. At which point. Either the national judicial authorities must step in or the officials must go. And without um, some of these um, reporters with a very, I'm thinking here of uh, Jerry Longman, of Juliet McCor, of Tariq Panja, without an approach that, that is determined to root out corruption and sexual abuse, I'm really worried that we won't have the same, that the, the, Fans of sport and won't have um, won't have the right information in front of them to know how and whether they can enjoy their favorite sport. Well, let's hope they move it to the business section. And frankly, given what you're saying, you know, it's everything tank in Washington should have a sports and human rights practice. Not to not to take away from what you do, but. Well, I, I would I would also um, point out that I've been at Human Rights Watch for 25 years, and in that time, we've done a lot of reporting, starting with the Beijing Olympics, moving through the Russia the Russia Winter Olympics in 2014, the World Cup in Brazil, which was you know had featured extrajudicial sure, executions. Right, right. We had the Olympics, we had the World Cup back in Russia. We've got all of the. We've got cycling events in Rwanda, which is which is run by one of the the longest uh, serving repressive leaders in in not just the region but the world, um, where press freedom doesn't exist. So I think it's it is concerning that there are so many sports events, 
so many governments that are investing in sports washing. At the same time, we're seeing a reduction in critical or enterprise reporting. And that's a that's a big cause for right, concern. Right. Well, I think your work is great, is much needed. And thank you. And thanks for thanks for being here on a Saturday night. Glad, glad to do it. Glad, um, you know, as uh, cycling um, gets with the sports washing program, I, I fear that you may have to have me back. Well, there's no one better. So thanks. The Riding With podcast is produced and edited by the team at Palm Tree Podco. Anthony Palmer is the executive producer.